Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. We've got a great lineup of questions on this special Easter edition of Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We'll talk about special powers in a power of attorney. The Good Samaritan Law, Revoking a Will, Legitimizing a Child, Contracts and Minors, and we'll hear from a special guest. So let's get started. We have a question from Rebecca. She says, my father is serving as the executor of his mom's estate. He's having a surgery soon that will result in him being unable to actively manage the estate property. I'm his agent under a power of attorney. Can I help him as his agent? Well, thanks for the question, Rebecca. Your father was prudent to create a power of attorney. A power of attorney allows him to appoint a person, in this case you, to assist him with his property and assets. A general power of attorney generally contains several areas where the person making the power of attorney authorizes his agent to act on his behalf. Most of the time, these documents are drafted so that they are effective even when the author becomes incapacitated. This is called a durable power of attorney. The specific question you're asking is whether an agent can help the author of the power of attorney with a special task assisting your father perform his duties as an executor. As you may know, an executor is called a fiduciary, which means your father must perform his task in a prudent manner and in a way that best represents the interest of the estate. It is very important to look at the terms of the power of attorney of your father because this power can only be exercised if your father specifically authorized his agent to perform fiduciary duties for him. Georgia does allow an executor to create a power of attorney appointing someone to assist him perform his job. Your father may want to consult with an experienced estate planning attorney to make sure the power of attorney has been drafted in such a way to allow you to serve him during his medical leave. Thanks for the question, Rebecca. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. We have a question from Tucker. He says, I currently work as a nurse. While sitting at an intersection in a car with my wife, I saw a car accident in another lane. I jumped out to help, but no one was seriously injured. Later, I began to think about the risk to me for helping someone else. Can I be sued if I provide assistance to someone in an emergency? Well, Tucker, thanks for your work as a nurse. It's truly a position of service, and I'm sure the patients you serve appreciate your care for them. 
Georgia law provides protections for citizens who see an emergency situation and react with a desire to help. It's commonly called the Good Samaritan Law. This law provides that a person who renders emergency care for the victims without compensation is not liable for civil damages as a result of any act or omission. It is important that the care be provided in good faith. In other words, that the person isn't intentionally or recklessly acting in a way to further injure the person. Another component of this Good Samaritan law is that it even covers a Good Samaritan who is acting in an emergency situation for someone in a locked car, like a child in a hot vehicle. One more component that's important for your situation, Tucker, is that it even extends protection for medical professionals who voluntarily render emergency care when they're not working. From a public policy standpoint, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because we want those who are most qualified to assist in medical situations to actually help when those injured are in need of care. So, Tucker, your instincts in wanting to help someone in need is probably consistent with what caused you to go into nursing in the first place. Just know that Georgia law wants to encourage your generosity and provides protection for you. Thanks for the question, Tucker. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. We have a question from Sophia. She says, My mom made a will several years ago. When she signed the will, she also signed another copy of the same document. I was recently reviewing some of my mom's papers, and I found one of the original wills, and my mom had handwritten some changes on the original document with an ink pen. Is that will still valid? Well, thanks for the question, Sophia. This is an interesting situation because we have two originals that now say different things. This presents an interesting legal quandary. The first question I want to address is the act of your mother in writing on the original will. A court will likely ask, did your mom intend to revoke the will when she wrote those things on the document, or was she just making some notes on one of the copies? The court will likely review the handwritten changes and see if they demonstrate an intent to revoke or make material changes. The court will presume an intent to revoke if those changes represent a material alteration or a destruction is made to the will. However, you can overcome this presumption with evidence that your mom did not intend to revoke. However, you'd have to prove that no intent to revoke existed by a preponderance of the evidence. If your mother continues to be competent to make a new will, you'll likely want to have her execute a new will so as to prevent any potential dispute about the validity of her will and save the expense and uncertainty regarding her last wishes. You did have another interesting twist, and that is the existence of another original will that does not have any markings. However, Georgia law suggests that when a testator who has executed a will in duplicate, cancels or destroys one of the duplicates, the presumption is that the testator meant thereby to revoke the will. Therefore, making a new will is definitely the safest move forward. 
Your mom would likely want to consult with an attorney to examine her entire estate plan and make sure that it's up to date. Thanks for the question, Sophia. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we have a special guest joining us today. John Stovall is a pastor of the Rock Presbyterian Church in Stockbridge and holds a doctorate in history from the University of Albany. His academic interests include the Byzantine Empire, Christian-Muslim relations, and the Reformation. Thanks for joining us today, Pastor John. My pleasure. On Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, we have a lot of listeners who attend church, but some people don't. But there, there is some question when we talk about the law and the Bible and how these two things intersect. So I thought it would be helpful, particularly during this season, to talk about the law and the Bible and how, how those two things connect. So the Bible uses this term law. What is the Bible referring to it when it says, for example, in Romans 5, 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yeah, thanks, Ted. Great, great question. The Bible uses the word law in a lot of different ways, but the way it's used there uh, is to refer to the classic understanding of the, the Old Testament, that Jewish uh, law code, that case law in uh, the 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 Torah, right? That is the, the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Genesis, that, that law given at, uh, at, at Mount Sinai uh, to Moses that the, the Jews still hold in reverence today. And um, of course, that, that particular uh, section you quoted talks about the fact that that law serves for, for Christians and for, for all people really to, to identify uh, where we fail. It, it serves as a kind of a mirror for us to look at and uh, really clarify the fact that we're we're not as good as we think we are. So it uses that term, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so that concept of grace is introduced, I guess, in the New Testament. Does that replace the law as a result of Jesus' death or resurrection? Or how does that play into when we're thinking about the law? Sure. Well, it's interesting you say you bring up grace and the New Testament, because, you know, grace, like law in the Bible, can mean a few different things, right? So in one sense, grace is just God's kindness in general. But here in the New Testament, you're right, just point out, it has a particular uh, connotation. It particularly connects to God's uh, favor shown to us uh, who don't merit it, who don't earn it. You know, it's so much of, of the legal profession, I think, you can tell me if I'm wrong, so much, of, so much of, of, of our lives as well is driven by performance right you perform you get a verdict you know if you do the action well you're 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 guilty of it, right if you commit the crime if you don't commit the crime then uh you're not guilty of it. you get the verdict of innocence right and so when the bible here the new testament talks about grace it's talking about something that we did not deserve right um the, i think anybody can look at their own life and see failures and we don't live up to our own expectations and certainly uh, if you believe the Bible, we don't live up to God's expectations. You know, we we ruin so much of our um, our relationships, our lives. And this word grace, when it comes to the New Testament, particularly talks about the way in which 
uh, God has done something incredible. It's what we celebrate. What we celebrate on Easter Sunday that God has done something that that we could not. That He has sent His Son into this world to live the life we could not live. I think many of your listeners will identify with the the desire to live a better life, and yet you try the routines, you try the diets, you try the New Year's resolutions, and and you last about a month or so, and then you fail. And so this word grace here is the way in which God's plan to seek and to save those who know they're guilty. It's God's legal plan in terms of sending his son to be perfect in our place. You know, that law we talked about, those uh, famously the Ten Commandments, what what does Jesus Christ do? He comes and does that. He loves his God with everything he has, he loves his neighbor. You read the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you know, and, and Christ says, here's what the commandment's talking about. You've heard it said, you, you'll, not, you'll not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already done that, already committed adultery in his heart. And that gets to the question you asked, does, does this grace, this mercy of God to undeserving people, people who actually deserve the opposite, we deserve guilt we deserve death right because we've we've done this level of thought crime we've committed this uh lustful action with our brains the question you asked is does this grace kind of supersede the law and jesus christ actually answers that in matthew 5 verse 18 and following this is the sermon on the mount he says for truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says in the, uh, the previous verse, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's saying, look, um, this law still stands. And of course, the implication is either you could try to do it. You could try to do that love towards God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll find that we tend to fail at that or you can look to him. And that's the grace, right? The the grace that we're talking about here, the grace of of good Friday, the grace of Easter Sunday is a a, a grace that, that says uh, in contrast to any other religion, any other view out there, you know, it says Jesus Christ did not hold on to his perfect life. You know, if, if we get good grades, we hold on to those. If we get a, get a good job, we keep it. If we get a good gal, we keep her. If we get a good car, we, we keep it as long as we can. Christ lived the good life, the perfect life. And the beautiful thing about him, really the, the beautiful thing about Christianity is at the core of the, of, of the faith is, is a man who lives that life and doesn't hold on to it. He actually gives it away. He actually gives it away for people who hate him. That was, that was you and that was me at once upon a time, right? He, he let go of his life for us. And our fear, of course, is that we don't want to give up control of our lives. Um, mm. But when we do to Christ, the beauty of it is that he actually embraces us. So it sounds like with the, if the law is still in existence as it's used in the Bible, what role is that continue to play for, for, um, for those who are believers, does it continue to have a role in helping us or 
what is that rule in the Bible for believers? Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, he, the, maybe the best way to look at this is actually in, in, the, in that same book you've been talking about, the, the book of Romans. I'll just quote here from Romans chapter 13, be, beginning in verse 8. Uh, well, verse 9, I suppose. The, he, Paul quotes the commandments here, the Ten Commandments. You should not commit adultery, not murder, steal, covet. We know the many of those. And he says, look, they're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The point there simply is that Paul is assuming that this Old Testament law, this Old Testament law code still applies in some sense, in this sense of love, right? We might call the general principle of the uh, morality of the law still applies. Though in, in many situations, uh, Christians no longer, for example, sacrifice goats. We don't take our bulls to, uh, to church and kill them up front. That's what you would do in the old days over in Jerusalem in the temple. We don't do that because uh, the, the, the New Testament makes a distinction here. It's a very important when thinking about law and thinking about deep things to make distinctions. And the, and the Bible makes a distinction between this moral law that continues, this command to love, uh, and it makes a distinction between that and what the theologians have called the uh, ceremonial law, right? The, that, that blood that was shed, the dietary laws, eating certain foods. What, what, why, do you, why do you have to eat certain kosher foods and not eat unclean foods? Well, uh, the Bible tells us that that was designed to show the demand of God for cleanness, even in our eating, right? Even in something as basic as what you eat and drink every day. Um, uh, the, the Bible tells us that, that there is that demand to be, to be clean. Uh, and so the point simply is that some elements of this Old Testament law, which were uh, given at that particular time for those uh, particular people, the Israelites under Moses, uh, were shadows. And the truth has come in Christ. He is that ultimate clean sacrifice. He is that uh, one whose blood is better than the blood of bull, uh, uh, goats and bulls. And so we look to him now, not going back to those uh, shadowy substances. Does the Bible address civil laws for individuals, how, how individuals should relate to civil laws? Absolutely, it certainly does. As Christians, this side of Easter, this side of the cross and the tomb, we hear something like Romans chapter 13, also from the Apostle Paul. He says this very clearly. Let, no, let, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's fairly clear there that Paul indicates, he shows it in his life as well under Rome, under a uh, pretty nefarious, famous Roman emperor named Nero, partially, as well as Claudius, uh, he, he indicates in his life his willingness to um, be under Roman civil law. And I think all would agree that uh, Roman civil law is not the best law out there. Not our law either. But the principle stands that in, in general, insofar as possible, uh, Christians are to... Uh, submit themselves to the government that God's appointed over them. 
We're visiting with Pastor John Stovall at the Rock Presbyterian Church in Stockbridge. If someone wants to learn more about this topic that we've been talking about, the law and uh, God's law and civil law, how can they reach out to you? Sure, they can uh, uh, email me, a very easy email, uh, Pastor John Stovall at gmail.com. That's uh, Stovall with one V and two L's. Happy to hear from them. Great. It's been a pleasure visiting with you, and we look forward to visiting again. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We have a question from Gary. He says, last week, my girlfriend told me she's pregnant with my child. I want to be an active father of the child. What can I do? Well, Gary, if you marry your girlfriend prior to the child being born, the child will be presumed to be yours and you'll have full rights as the father. If you do not get married, it's important that you take further steps to protect your status as the parent of that child. First, you'll likely want to secure a paternity test to prove that you are, in fact, the father of the child. While you may be confident of this status, a court will likely want some scientific evidence of your status as the biological parent. Second, after the child is born, you'll want to pursue legitimation of the child. This is a legal process where you petition the superior court in the county where the child is located, asking the court to issue an order declaring that you are, in fact, the father of the child. This will create your status as legal father and will provide you rights as to the child. Finally, you can then ask the court to provide certain rights to you as to custody issues and visitation where appropriate. Usually, moving forward with custody issues may also include obligations to provide support for the child. Gary, for the sake of the child, statistics seem to show that a child with two actively involved parents and a stable home environment has a better chance of success in school and staying out of trouble as they grow into adulthood. Even if the process of gaining legal parental status will result in additional obligations, the well-being of your child and your happiness in enjoying being an active parent will certainly be worth it. Thanks for the question, Gary. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. I grew up riding and training my horse named Oklahoma. I rode her most every day. We traveled to horse shows on Saturdays during the spring and summer, and we even participated in annual 4-H camps that lasted for weeks. She was a well-trained horse, and it was not unusual for Oklahoma to win Western Pleasure and Horsemanship classes at the shows where we competed. I remember one show when I was about 15 years old. I was standing beside the ring watching one of the other classes when I was approached by a man who asked if I'd be interested in selling Oklahoma. I thought for a moment, and I quoted what I thought was a hefty price for Oklahoma. We talked for a minute, and then he walked away. It didn't take long for me to begin to second-guess the thought of selling my prized horse. After all, I enjoyed riding her, and did I really want to start over training another horse? 
Well, this reminds me of a legal issue. If the man would have accepted the offer, would we have had a valid contract? There is no rule against having an oral contract for the purchase of a horse. While a written contract is typically required for real estate, a horse or other personal property can be the subject of an oral contract. The real issue is whether a 15-year-old can enter into a valid contract to sell a horse. Well, as a minor, I could enter into the contract. Assuming that the requirements of a contract are met, I could enforce the contract against the man who offered to buy my horse. However, because I was a minor, the contract was voidable by me until I turned 18 years old. Well, thankfully, the man did not come back and accept my offer. I enjoyed showing Oklahoma for several more years, and she remained a part of my family until she died many years later. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. You've been listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information Comments and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.